The Apostle John, follower of Jesus, um, had disciples himself. He made disciples as Jesus patterned um, in him, for him. Jesus also, John, rather, um, amazing pastor, amazing loving pastor, um, made disciples. Eusebius, one of the early church historians, has a story to tell um, about John and one of his disciples. It was a young man that John had led to faith in Christ, and he was headed on a trip. And so before he left, he entrusted this young man to the local pastor and said, hey, please take care of him, please teach him, please, please continue to instruct him um, in the ways of Christ, and, and when I get back, you know, he can move back in with me, and we'll, and we'll continue, but so um, John goes on his trip, gone for a long time, comes back, goes to the bishop, says, where is, where is, the, where is the young man, and we don't know his name, um, but the bishop said, John, I am so sorry, and he hung his head, I am so sorry, um, this young man is dead. Sounds like dead? What do you mean dead? <laughs> and he said, the bishop said, he, he is dead to God. He is, he is no longer following Christ. And the bishop explains that this young man had fallen into friendship with some young men that were criminals. They were stealers. They um, pranks, different things like that, just ran to the wrong crowd in town. And so they end up stealing, you know, they end up hanging out late, stealing things, and then eventually one thing led to another, and they became basically a band of organized crime. And this man, that was John's disciple, became the leader of this group. And they had, they had become so notorious, they had moved to live on a hillside outside of town. And basically no one, could, no one could go get them. The authorities couldn't get them because they had so many people and anybody that would climb up the hill, they would, they would find them in, in, in the woods and kill them. But when John hears this, John hears what, what happened to this young man, he tears his clothes and says, get me a horse. And this old man probably with the help of someone else, jumps on this horse and rides to this hill and up the hill to his death. He goes after this young man. Of course, the scouts see him, but John, he gets captured and he says, that's fine, I wanted to be captured. Please take me to your leaders. And of course, one of the leaders is this disciple. So this young man, though he is armed Though he is with his posse, though he is there in control, he sees the Apostle John walking toward him in handcuffs and runs. Heads off for the woods. And John, this old man, takes off after him. Running after him. Hunts him down. It's fantastic, isn't it? Sorry, I haven't got to the punchline. That's good. Um... John takes after him, and he's screaming at him, running through the forest, stop running, I'm old. I'm also unarmed. Can't you see there is still hope for you? I will give my own life for you. Just as Jesus gave his life for us, I will give my life for you. I will help you. Stay, stop. Believe that Jesus has sent me to you again. The young man stopped, threw off his weapons, dropped down on his knees in the woods, and wept bitterly. And John, over the next weeks and months, cared for this man, preached the gospel to this young man, prayed for him, and restored him to the church. Now, we have to ask in light of this, where does this kind of love come from? What kind of love does John have that would cause him to risk everything to save this young man and bring him back to the church? Where do we get this kind of love? Well, this is what 1 John, the whole book, is really about. You know that if you've been with us for the last few weeks that we are learning through the book of 1 John that it is actually possible to know God. 
it is possible to actually have a relationship with him, to experience him, to, to know him in a relationship. Um, he's not just an impersonal force. He's not just a great idea, but he is actually a being, a person, and we can know him. And if we do know him, if we really are born again and we have been raised in newness of life because of what Jesus has done, then, then we've learned through the book all, all already that three things will identify us. We will, three things will be happening in our life. All right, we've talked about these already, but remind us to kind of show you where we are on the map this morning. Um, the one thing that will be evident is that we will obey God's commands. Those that belong to God obey his commands, love his commands, grow in obedience to his commands. The second is that we will love one another. There will be love in our relationship. So there's a relational element. And the third one, which we'll get to in a couple weeks, is we will believe the right things about the gospel. We will believe accurate things about Jesus. So there is an obedience, there is a love, and there is a truth. And so these are the three things that are evident in the life of everyone that knows God, really knows God. How do we know that we're not just fooling ourselves? How do do we know this isn't just an experiment for us? How do we know that something's really happened to us? We will see these three things. So today, we're picking up with number two, which is the relational reality. What's happening in our relationships? And it's love. (laughs) Now, John is not taking us on a trip. Remember, we've seen this through through, through the book already. He's very unlike many of the other Bible writers that have a very linear thought you know, taking a trip like from this place to that place and I'm going to get you from point A to point B with linear logic and John is nothing like that. When he takes us on a trip, it's like jumping on a merry-go-round. We're going around and around and around and we see the same thing. You remember as a kid when you're on a merry-go-round and, you know, your parents are over there and, that, you know, you, you kind of saw them about, you know, every three seconds as you swung around. Well, that's what First John is like. It's like literally we're seeing the same things over and over again about every two Sundays or so. So we're going to revisit this. Because John revisits us, and obviously we need to hear these things again and again. So in chapter 4, we're at the second point. If we know God, we'll love one another. Turn with me to verse 7, chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, no one's ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. This is God's word. We're going to focus on these verses today, four through seven. There's six verses here, and they, they are organized somewhat well for us this morning. The first two verses, we're going to, here's, here's an outline if you're Two of you are taking notes today. You're going to write down these three points, okay? Um, and hopefully I'll get to all of these. And I need to say these things because then I'll be, I'll be sure to get to them all. Or at least I'll feel compelled to get to them all. But I really just want to talk about the first two. But the third one is really important too. So I'm going to give you all three. Um, we're going to see in the first two verses how God's love is defined broadly. God's love is defined. The second two verses, we're going to see how God's love is described how is it shown to us? And then the third section is going to be, how is God displayed or proclaimed in love? So God is defined, he is, God's love is defined, his love is described, and then God is displayed. So verse 7, how, how is the love of God defined very broadly for us? Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, if we were just to take these two verses on their own and not read the rest of 1 John or even the rest of this passage, we could make a lot of mistakes, come to a lot of wrong conclusions just on these couple of verses. Think about it. 
Here is what you could think reading this. If I love others the way that I define love, then that means I'm good. I belong to God. I'm born again. And you hear this all the time. Hey, I love people. I'm a good person. I'm not, I don't hate anyone. Well, you actually do, but we'll talk about that at the end. But we, we do hate people. Um, so here's the conclusion. If I meet my definition of love, I know God. And so I really don't have to know God personally. I can just experience God in a very general, ethereal way because I have a general feeling of love. And if I love someone, then I must be like God. I must know God. So God is love. Oh, okay. God is an emotion. I get it now. God is, a, God is something I feel or God is something that I want to experience with someone. He's doing good. God does good things for people. I do good things for people. Therefore, I must know God. I mean, it's all right there. But the way that we define love is the most important thing in this passage. Because if we say that our definition of love is the ultimate thing, because we reverse it. We don't say God is love. In our heads, we read that, we go, well, love is God. Love is the most important thing. Love is all you need. I could sing it. Um, Therefore, we shy away from making judgments. We shy away from the truth. We shy away from clarity. Because we think that our idea of love is the most important thing. And so we get very disappointed and we get very exhausted and we, we're lost. So how have you done this? Have you exalted your idea of love above God himself? Do you measure everything by the way that you think love should be expressed? It's very easy to do. That's why John helps us here. He says, but what, are we, but what we're saying here is that God is the one that defines love. We don't get to do that. <laughs> we know what love is. Not by looking to know in our hearts. Not by looking to what the culture says or what your friends say love might be. We know what love is because we look at God. God is love. And it's like with all his attributes. You know, we, we say other things are, are true about God. We say God is true. We say God is good. God is love. He's merciful. Now, here's the mistake we can make attributing things to God like this. We can have a very concrete idea of what we think truth is, what we think is good, and, you know, our opinions about what is good. And we go, oh, that means God does good things. Or I have an idea of what mercy is. Oh, look, I see God doing merciful things. Or we attribute what we think is an objective truth about love. And this is fixed. And we go, oh, God's like that. But it's the opposite. See, it's not that God does good things or true things. Everything God does is true. Everything God does is good. Everything God does is love. Does that make sense? So we're going to talk more about that next week. But, but this is how we're learning what love is. So that's why two times in the next section, verses 9 and 10, he says, in this is love. He's defined it broadly, and now he's got to describe it to us. He's got to show it to us, because the definition of love is the most important thing about this passage. What is this love? Now, he's already spoken to us about redefining the way that we think about love. Go with me back in 1 John, back to 2, seven. Chapter 2, verse 7. We talked about this a few weeks ago. Beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment you've heard from the beginning. You, you, you remember this. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. But at the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Right, we talked about this, but, but this idea, this is what we need to drill down into. Loving one another, we need to know, is not unique to Redemption Hill. It's not unique to Christianity. 
Loving one another is a universal value that almost every culture, every government, every worldview, every religion shares. Everybody says loving one another is a pretty good idea. Nobody says, you know what, we need to make a law against that. Or you know what, loving one another is really not important. I mean, you go down the line, everybody says, you know, we ought to love one another. Every parent, every person, everyone loves that. So it's not a universal thing. It's an old commandment, right? It exists everywhere. I mean, it, ex- it exists back in Leviticus in the Bible. And if it's there, it's everywhere, right? If it's in Leviticus. So it's an old commandment, right? But now Jesus is saying something, or John is saying something very, very bold about this. This is, Jesus makes this new. Here's the point. How is it new? Well, look at verse 8 again. It is true in him. And this is the whole point this morning. This is the whole point. This command to love one another is true in Jesus. This means the way that God has loved us in Christ is the highest expression of love. And this is what I want to show today. Christians, write this down. This is, this is, this is all you get. This will be helpful. Christians have a radical and unique model and a radical and unique resource for loving one another, different from anyone else. John is saying that Christians have a model and motivation in Christ that is radically different than any other worldview, any other religion, any other idea. Because as the NIV puts this, it says, we see the truth about love in Christ. So, you ready? And this is love. Let's, let's, let's see what this is. We've already seen, so we've seen how God's love is defined broadly. Now we're going to see how it's described. We're going to see the contours of it. We're going to see the details of what God's love is in Christ. Because it is a unique and radical resource for us. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world that we might live through him. And again, this phrase again, in this is love, in this is love. John is defining love. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, before I get into this idea of propitiation, you need to know this. Love can be measured. Love has degrees. Not all love is equal. Jesus said this. John records it. Greater love has no man than this, than someone lay down his life for a friend. That means there's greater love, there's lesser love. So God's love, to know God's love is to measure it, not to have a vague general idea, but to know exactly what was sacrificed. We can measure love by what is given up or what is sacrificed for the one that is loved. Jesus said, hey, greater love has no one than this. That means there could be lesser love than that. But it says, greater love has no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Now, I'm making the case this morning that Jesus' love for us, no one's loved us like him. But I know if you're rational and thinking and awake this morning, you're like, wait a minute. There's people that have died for other people. That's not unique. I mean, I was looking some stuff up last night on the internet, just stories about people laying down their lives, and I was thinking about reading some of them, but I, I won't, because they're just, they will, they're so emotional, and you won't remember a thing else I say if I start telling some of these stories, right? I mean, mothers sacrificing their bodies, their lives, they're dying to save their children. I mean, soldiers that throw themselves on the hand grenade that is thrown into the foxhole to save other people. And I just got to say this one because it's April 15th. You know what significance of April 15th is? Besides the fact that all our taxes are due this week. It's the 100th anniversary of the Titanic sinking. Credible stories of well-to-do men standing back while women and children fill the lifeboats and are saved and they drowned. 
Amazing stories. So, so there are all kinds of stories that how people sacrifice, make the ultimate sacrifice for someone they love. But John is telling us that Jesus' love is greater than that. And now how? Let's look at the next verse. Verse 10. And this is love. Not that we loved God. Now, we're going to come back to that phrase in, in a little bit, but in this is love, that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What does this mean? How has Jesus loved us? He went to hell for you. No one has gone to hell for you. Like, I mean, you just stop there. No one has ever gone to hell for us. Jesus has gone to hell. This is how it looks. This is how it works, right? God commands Adam in the garden, if you love me, you obey me, you'll get life, you'll get me, you'll live in joy. You know what his deal with Jesus was? My son, if you love me, if you obey me, I will crush you. We know this from Good Friday. We know this from the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus is there considering what's coming ahead. He's going to be beat. He's going to be scourged. He's going to have a crown of thorns. He is struggling. And he stops to consider the weight of our sin and the punishment it deserves. Eternal, unrelenting, unmerciful wrath from God. You may remember this from our Good Friday service. He is getting ready to experience eternal separation from his Father. And the big question is, will he drink this cup? In his humanness, Jesus is like, all right, I know we talked about this, but if there is any other way, let this cup be passed from me. And then here are the words that save us. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Will Jesus take the cup of God's wrath or leave it for you and I to drink? That's a big question. But you know, a bigger question is, will Jesus serve himself? Will he escape? Or will he serve his Father? We know how it ends. Not my will, but yours be done. When we say that, I mean, when by God's grace, you and I come to a place where we're willing to say, not my will, but yours be done, what happens? It's like God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Welcome into the joy of your master. We get acceptance. We get life. What did Jesus get? He gets hell for saying, not my will, but yours be done. No one's loved you like this. Greater love. There are degrees to this. It can be measured, but not by sentiment, not by words. Love can be measured by what is sacrificed, by what is suffered. We get this from 1 Corinthians 13. Love bears all things. Love endures all things. Now, you may want me to read this at your wedding, and I will gladly do that for you. It is such a beautiful passage as 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. It's just poetry. It's beautiful. But if you ask me to read at your wedding, I will stand up there and I will say, it's beautiful, but you can't do one word of it. It won't be one month before you realize you can't do any of those things listed. Jesus is the only one that bears all things. Jesus is the only one that can endure all things. Until you realize that you can't and he has, you will never even grow in any of those patience, kindness. Just, I'll certainly read it at your wedding, but you may think twice. But That's the reality. Jesus has borne all things for us. Therefore, his love is greatest. I mean, I I need to push this point. So how is it true in him? Was it the torture that Jesus was staring at as horrible 
as it was. And as horrible as it was going to be that he's going to lose his body to the Roman soldiers to, for, to be tortured. What caused him to shudder in the Garden of Gethsemane was that he was about to be removed, forsaken, separated from his heavenly father. He did not just become a sinful person on the cross or he did not only take our sin upon him. Second Corinthians says he became sin. That means that this Jesus, this son of God who had never known a nanosecond of separation from God the Father was about to be removed from his God as far as the east is from the west. He was getting ready to suffer the loss of the most valuable, important thing in the universe. Can we, can we argue about this for just a second? Jesus, one with the Father, fellowship with the Father, eternal oneness and goodness is arguably the most valuable commodity in the universe to know God like that. The most valuable thing you could ever imagine would be to have fellowship, unhindered unity and oneness with God. And Jesus is about to lose it forever for you. Greater love has no one than this. No one has ever sacrificed so much. No one. And you know, it's a mystery. It's a mystery. But in those hours on the cross, Jesus suffered the wrath of God, the hell, that it would take everybody that belongs to God in eternity to exhaust. I don't understand it, but that's what he did. Whatever he went through, you add up all of our hells for all of eternity, and that's what he got. He took our punishment in that moment. Words fail to describe what he suffered for you and I. Words fail to describe the love of God, the love of Jesus. No one's loved us like this. He had always addressed his, his, his father as father, but now on the cross he cries, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Folks, how great is our sin that it would cause the son of God to be separated like this, to be forsaken? God was displaying all his wrath and emptying his wrath. Why? We have to ask why. Robert Murray McShane, a Scottish pastor who unfortunately died at the age of 30, (laughs) preaching on the Lord's Supper, right before the Lord's Supper, kind of like what we're doing right now. We're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a few minutes. This is what he had to say. Dear friends, let us look into this ocean through which Christ waited for us. He was without any comforts of God, no feeling that God loved him, no feeling that God pitied him, no feeling that God supported him. God was his son before now, and the son became all darkness. Not a smile from his father, not a kind look, not a kind word. He was without God. He was as if he had no God. All that God had been to him before was taken from him now. He was godless, deprived of his God. He had the feeling of the condemned when the judge says, depart from me, ye cursed, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. He felt that God said the same to him. Ah, this is the hell that Christ suffered. Dear friends, I feel like a little child casting a stone into some deep ravine in the mountainside and listening to hear its fall, but listening all in vain. Or like the soldier, 
or like the sailor, excuse me, casting the lead at sea, but it's too deep. The longest line cannot fathom it. The ocean of Christ's suffering is unfathomable. He was forsaken in the place of sinners. If you close with him as your surety, he will never be forsaken. From the broken bread and poured out wine seems to rise the cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Can you hear the question? Can you hear the answer? For you. For you. No one has endured all that so much for those he loved. Now you may not believe this, you may not believe in Jesus, you may not believe the biblical historical account of any of this, but I hope you can agree at least with these two things. One, that by rejecting this message, rejecting the truth about Jesus, you're not just rejecting some religious tenets. You're not just rejecting this vague idea of how we look at God, but you are turning your back on the greatest love story in the universe for all time. Just know. Just know what you're turning away from and that it will never get any better than what I just described. Think of the greatest love story you can. Think of the greatest sacrifice for love you can. Think of the greatest romance. Think of the greatest Anthony Cleopatra, Romeo and Juliet. You just line them all up. Gone with the wind. I mean, just, just, just think of the greatest... Yeah, you're like, what's that? Um, <laughs> um, doesn't get any better than this. And you would also have... I would hope you would see the logic in John. That those that do believe this have resources for love that people that don't believe it don't have. That this, knowing this love, is a resource unparalleled for loving others. So verse 11. How does this resource for love play out? Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So, the one who knows that they know that they know that they know God loves them. So much that the Father would send his son to suffer like this. These folks will see everything differently. In fact, the difference is so striking of seeing this and not seeing this that John, you already know this from what we've studied, calls one light and calls the other darkness. The difference of the way that seeing God's love for us like this in the sufferings of Christ is, it changes us so radically that it's like going from darkness to light. Remember in chapter two, verse 10, he says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, but whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. See, John is describing two different realms here. He's describing two different kingdoms. He's describing two, two different things. And what is a realm? A realm is where one particular influence is reigning. For, for, for example, when we drink too much, everything that we think and say is being influenced by that alcohol, everything. Everything we think, everything we take in, everything we say is being influenced by that. See, that, that, that's, that's what he's saying here. He said that Jesus' love will influence everything. You can't be in the realm of Jesus' love and not love others. It's impossible. The way that if you drink too much, you're not influenced by alcohol. Everything that you say and do is influenced. You'll see everything differently once you enter into the realm of Jesus' love. You know, you'll still have tragedies. <laughs> Once you're trans, like Colossians says, we're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of Jesus, of this, into the kingdom of the Son of God's love, darkness to light. You'll still experience tragedies no matter which one you're in. But the tragedies won't overwhelm you. They won't crush you. Because you know that the greatest tragedy that you could ever experience has been avoided. You'll still experience successes no matter what kingdom you're in, darkness or light. But the successes won't mean as much to you because you know or that they won't boost you the way they used to because 
you know they're a gift. And you know that God in his goodness and providence could remove them in a second. And you know that the real success comes from Jesus, that because of Jesus, his living his perfect life, you already have success before the Father. It doesn't make you rise or fall. Successes don't. So the way you see everything changes. And so it is with our relationships. Here, here, here's, here it is. Okay? We cannot be conscious of the wrath of God that Jesus waded through for us and not love our brother. You have to reject one or the other. You cannot picture and understand Jesus wading through the ocean of God's wrath and you still want to take someone's head off. It's impossible. If you know the extent of what we deserved and you know the extent of what Jesus suffered, you will not withhold forgiveness. You will not hold on to wrath for someone else if you know how much wrath you deserved and how much wrath Jesus took. You cannot hold on to it if you're looking at God's love. That's what he's saying. To forgive someone, remember how I said you measure love by what's sacrificed. If we forgive someone, in order to forgive someone, we have to sacrifice our right to justice. Knowing God took the justice we deserved on himself. To restore a relationship, we have to sacrifice. We have to confess our sin. We have to sacrifice our pride and our imperfect righteousness. (laughs) We have to suffer that. We have to sacrifice that. Knowing that Jesus lost his righteousness, his real righteousness, the perfect righteousness for you. You will love those closest to you by sacrificing something you really enjoy. Isn't that the way it works, guys? And we want to communicate to our wives that we really want to be with them, that we really love them. We'll cancel something that we've scheduled that we are really, 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 really going to enjoy just to be with them. That's different from if you're just hanging out, you got nothing to do. Hey, what are you doing? It's different. You cancel plans. You, you, you cancel some huge trip. You cancel some great event just to hang out with, with a friend of yours. Oh, my gosh. That communicates so much. We have to sacrifice those things to communicate love. Everything changes when you hear the cry of Jesus coming up from the bread and the wine. Why am I in this mess? The bread's crying out, why am I forsaken? And the answer is for you. Verse 11 again, if we loved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. See, one other thing that changes is that we'll see hate the way Jesus does. You, you, you remember in the Sermon on the Mount, verse Chapter 5, verse 21, I'll read it very quickly. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. But whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. It just gets worse. Though the crime gets less. There's three flavors of hate here. There's murder, That's when you're trying to or you're doing harm to others and you get judgment for that, right? We know that. But this is what Jesus is adding. There's anger. Anger is no different from murder because you wish harm on someone. You want harm for someone. You just lack the courage or the strength to carry it out. There's nothing noble in that. You're just not strong enough. This is one of the reasons why our kids are so small, and that is such a good thing for us. I mean, I know my kids get so angry, they they would kill me in in my sleep. They just lack the strength or the courage. You know what I'm talking about. Sometimes we lock our door at night. We know what's going on. Thank God they're so small, and they don't know where all the knives are. The third one, insult. This Aramaic word, raka, 
You fool. Translate it in your Bibles. You know another way to read it? You nobody. You don't matter. The worst kind of hate, you don't matter. That redefines it, doesn't it? You don't, saying to someone else, you don't matter. You've heard me say this before, I'll say it again. I'll tattoo it on my arm someday. The opposite of love is not hate. What's the opposite of love? It's indifference. Saying to those the closest to you, you don't matter. I don't care about you. I'm not motivated toward you. I'm not, I'm indifferent toward you. Neither love nor hate. I just don't care. We've seen love defined. We've seen it described. Now we need to look at how is it displayed. No one has ever seen God, verse 12 says. But if we love one another, God abides in us. And his love is perfected in us. Man. Now remember, remember John, I don't know if we've talked about this before, but here we go. Three, John makes three statements. God is blank, right? Two in 1 John, one in the Gospel of John. We already read the one in 1 John. Remember what it is? God is what? God is the first chapter. God is light. Well done. God is light. Now, right now we just read, God is love. John makes a third emphatic statement about who God is in his gospel, and he says, God is spirit. Remember this? God is spirit. It's when he's talking to this woman in the middle of the day at a well, and he's trying to explain to her that that God, the Father, is not worshipped in a particular building or a particular way or in this particular spot. He's opening up this lady's eyes to the spiritual realm and saying, God is spirit. And those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is spirit. Well, he's coming back to this idea here. No one has ever seen God. God doesn't have a body. We see hints of it with Moses in the Old Testament where where Moses and God are interacting on Mount Sinai. But God says, I've got to hide you in this rock when I pass by because no one can see me and live. No one sees God. God is spirit. We cannot see him. And so this is, you have to realize that. That's why this statement is so fascinating. If we know and understand and rely on the love that God has for us and we bend it outward, if we bend it horizontal, like John Piper says, if we bend goodness and justification outward toward others, God lives in us. He abides in us. He is made visible in us. He is visible. He is unse- he cannot be seen to anyone with the natural eye. But if we love one another, this God becomes incarnate once again. He is in our emails. He's in our conversations. He is in the way that we treat people and the way that we love people and the way that we care for people and the way that we sacrifice even the smallest things to prefer other people. He is in when we sacrifice time that we'd rather spend with our comfortable buddy friends to spend time with those that we have fellowship around the gospel and they need us and we need them. He is in those moments of sacrifice. He's in our text messages. He's in those things. He's even on the city. He is in all of those things, all right? He is in the way that we love one another. He's there. He's made manifest in there. In fact, he is made visible. His presence is in there in ways that he is not present with us as individuals. Do we see this? We need to see how powerful this is. This completely turns all of our motivation and all of our reason for community and relationships completely on its head. Radical way to think about why we're together. Think about it. If you're like me, you go through moods about relationships. You go through moods about community. Sometimes you're all about it. 
You're eager. You are at every meeting. You're at every dinner, breakfast. You want to be with people. You want to engage. You want to go deep. You care about your relationships. And if you're like me, you will swing then to, I don't care about anybody. I am done. I am alone. I'm happy. I'm a rock. I'm an island. And a rock feels no pain. An island never cries. I'm happy there. I could sing that too. But I won't. You're there. You vacillate between those two things, right? Some people are characterized by this. But if you're like me, you... Now, I know what you're thinking. I'm going to say, hey, this is really good. <laughs> this is really bad. Sheep, goats, right? You're thinking, I'm, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that one attitude is good because guess what? Both of those moods can be wrong. Both of those moods can totally miss the point. You know what's common in both of those? It's all about you. It's all about me. If I have a felt need for community relationships, I am all in. I'm there. I'm calling you. I'm after you. I am in your house. But if I don't have a felt need, if I'm good, everything's great, I'm happy, I don't need you. And I'll reject it. I'll ignore you. I'll be indifferent. Different fruit, same motivation. It's not about us, guys. Relationships are not for us. God is completely turning this on our heads. If we will sacrifice, if we will lay down our lives, if we will love one another, God abides in us. He gave us people to fellowship with and to care about and to love, not so we could be fulfilled or happy or complete or edified or changed. Although all those things happen, the ultimate reason, perfection, love is perfected in us. God's love is perfected in us. Perfection means it has, love has reached its ultimate end in displaying God in our lives when we love one another. In our relationships, God is made visible. His love, the reason why love exists, is perfected. He wants to be made visible. That's why he gives us one another. It can't be selfish. It can't be about us. Or we'll miss it. We'll do it for the wrong reason or we'll ignore it for the right reason. Last thing I'll say about this. Jesus getting ready to leave this earth. He's spending time with his disciples. He is in that last supper. He knows what's all the changes that are about to take place for himself and for these 12 faithful men that have followed him. 11 at this point. What's he say to him? He has to change their paradigm. He has to redefine for them what it means to be a disciple. He has to, he has to change what it means for them to be faithful or how they or anyone else will know that they really belong to him. This is how he does it. How will they be assured beyond any doubt that they are now children of God if Jesus is gone? Little children. This is chapter 13, verse 33. Little children. Yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that if you love one another... A new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people, including them, will know that you are my disciples if you have love, not for me, directly. Love for one another. See how he's turning it? See, faithfulness to Jesus at that point meant you follow him. And that you leave your nets, you leave your business, you get up and you go, you follow him, you have meals with him, you walk in the dust of his steps, you, you have meals with him, you, you go on field trips with him, right? You go on day trips to go preach about the kingdom of God and heal people and raise the dead. Crazy field trips, man. You listen to his sermons, you take good notes, that's, that's what it means to be a follower of Jesus at this point. That's the mark but he's given a new commandment. 
Now the mark of a follower is loving one another. That's how you know. That's how you know. Do we love Jesus but can't forgive? Not possible. We say we love God but are indifferent toward knowing and loving others? Not possible. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, if you're like me, this is incredibly striking to you. I get stuck. I am stuck by this. I feel pricked. I see how much I don't love God when I see how much I don't love others. Now, how should we respond? Go back to verse 10, chapter 4. Told you I'd come back to this. In this is love. Not that we loved God. Or anyone else for that matter. But he loved us. You cannot make yourself love. There are no ten steps to being less selfish. Love is an attitude of the heart before it's ever in action. So, to respond to this, we cannot turn to people. We cannot turn to actions. He says, okay, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do that. It doesn't work. You'll be faking it. Because we think, if I want to abide with God, I better get about loving others. That's not what it says. You read farther down, we'll get to this next week. We love because he first loved us. We have to turn to Jesus right now. We can't turn to action and reforming our ways. We turn to Jesus. We see him wading through the ocean of God's wrath. And when we take communion here in a minute, after we take a moment or two to think, to reflect, I pray that when, we, when you see the bread and you see the juice, you'll hear, you'll hear the cry coming up from them. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You'll hear it. And you'll know this for you. And if you hear that this morning, if you see that this morning in the bread and in the juice, you can love. Because it'll be God first loving you. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need your help. I know many in here are being stuck to the heart because we have misunderstood and we've not understood what it means to be yours and what it means to love. So God, we turn to you now asking for your help. God, may we push through the conviction, may we push through the condemnation to trust in you and what you have done for us and may you change us so that you might be made visible. God, we cry out to you. Make yourself known through us. Amen.